Good morning, church. This morning, our scripture reading is in Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 19, and we'll be reading through chapter 2, verse 19. Ruth chapter 1, verse 19 through chapter 2, verse 19. The Bible says, Verse 19, so they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them, and they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Chapter 2. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him, in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on the part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence. But abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on, let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and do go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art a thirst, go into the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thy husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother, and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Then she said, Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord. For that thou hast comforted me, and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaidens. And Boaz said unto her, At mealtime come thou hither and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed, and left. And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not. And let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her, and leave them, 
that she may glean them and rebuke her not. So she gleaned in the field until even and beat out that she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she brought forth and gave to her that she had reserved after she was sufficed. And her mother-in-law said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today, and where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought, and said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. If you have your Bibles this morning, come with me to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Ruth, chapter 1. I might just make mention as you're turning and preparing, if you've got a little one and you would like to take the little one out, feel free to do so. If the little one starts making too much noise, it's understandable. Uh, And we also have speakers now in the hallway in case you go out that you're able to continue to participate listening in on the sermon while you're in the hallway I'd like to begin the sermon this morning with a definition on two theological terms that I hope will be helpful for us. When I say theological terms, please don't get worried or get scared of them. Two that I think are very helpful for us as believers to understand. The first one is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. I'll just define it, and we've got it on the screen this morning. The sovereignty of God is the idea that God has every right to rule over the affairs of man in the affairs of all of His creation, and He exercises that right. So God has every right, as the Creator of the universe, He has every right to rule that creation. And it's not just that He has the right to do it as if He were somehow hobbled or chained back from actually ruling As the sovereign of the universe, he has the right to do it, and he does it. And when I say the word sovereign, or you hear sovereignty, I think the word sovereign might mean something to us as a commonwealth nation. Just last night, if you stayed up and watched, last night we had the crowning of our own king, King Charles III, and his wife, Queen Consort, Queen Camilla, they were crowned last night. It's a part for our commonwealth. As an American with Scottish roots, I have a tendency to go bah humbug and not care about it. But, as a commonwealth nation, it is a big part of our heritage. And so we had a crowning of a king last night, and now, whether you like him or you don't like him, he is our sovereign. He's our monarch. He's our king. He's the one who is the head of the state. And he is now in charge, king over 15 commonwealth nations as the sovereign. It's worth noting there were many similarities in the crowning, in the coronation. And if you want to get just a glimpse of what that final day will be like, It's worth having a look at all of the pomp and circumstance that was involved in crowning the king. An amazing ceremony that happened that is just a glimpse of what is to come. One day, the King of kings and Lord of lords will be crowned king for all of eternity, and there will never be one who will stand against him. And so you can get a glimpse of what is to come by having a look at last night's coronation. And while there are some similarities, there are vast differences. 
And when I think of vast differences, I think of our king, who is not just king over 15 nations, but king over the entire universe, and he is not, never will be perceived as weak. And he has no scandals in his background. And he will marry a pure bride who has been washed by his blood. Oh, we have a wonderful sovereign. And he will not just be the face of the nation, but the government will be upon his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will be king of kings and lord of lords forever and ever. Oh, we have much to look forward to. That's the sovereignty of God. Over against the sovereignty of God, we have another theological term, the providence of God. The providence of God and the sovereignty of God work hand in hand, and yet they are two separate things. The sovereignty of God, He has the right to rule, and He does rule. The providence of God is how He does it. The providence of God, the way in which God rules over all of His creation, and you can see the word, even the meaning even in the word providence, providing. You can see the word there. And he does that in the daily affairs of you and I, but he also does it in the very fact that he sent his very own son, his beloved son, to the cross so that he could provide for you and I the salvation that you and I need. For we could not do that in and of ourselves. You cannot meet the justice of God with the grace of God without the cross. And He provided the cross to bring together those things. The very thing that you and I needed, salvation to be right with God, He provided for it. That's His providence. As sovereign, He has every right to eternally damn us. And as sovereign, He has every right to call us His sons. So how can He do it? He does it with His providence. And He calls us to be His sons through the Gospel. He sends Jesus to the cross to take the justice and provide the mercy. That's His wonderful gift to us in His providence. And yet His providence is not only relegated to the cross and those big world ideas, but they're also brought into our lives in the minute, very little details of your life. I think the simplest and easiest way for me to describe this would be my own relationship with my wife. How is it, and I hope that by me sharing a little bit of this, I hope it helps you to spark in your own mind, how is it that God has been providing in my life the providence of God? As a 17-year-old young man, I sat in a chair at a friend's house, and I met the young lady who would become my wife. Now, that's the providence of God. Because just a few years before that, she had seen me, and I was wearing a purple suit, not gray suit, a purple suit. Young men, take a hint right now, purple is not the color for a suit. And I was wearing red snakeskin cowboy boots. That's exactly the way I feel about it right now. I was playing the accordion. It only got better. I love the accordion sound in our orchestra. I'm thankful for it. 
But playing an accordion wearing red boots and wearing a purple suit did nothing for me in my stature before that young lady's eyes. She did exactly what I would expect any young lady to do in this current setting today. She leaned over to her sister and made fun of me. That's what her first experience with Matt Allen was. Several years later, I was sitting in a chair, and I'll tell you, it was the providence of God. I was doing my flight training. I was at the point in my, in my, in my, my, my flight training where I'd written off for a scholarship. Young people, if you get an opportunity to apply for a scholarship, do it. I wrote off for a scholarship, and I did not read the fine print in the scholarship. I won the scholarship. It was awarded to me. But then I had to read the fine print. And the fine print said, in order for me to use the scholarship, I had to go to a certain type of school. And it turned out that that certain type of school did not exist in the town that I lived in. So I had to go away to a different town. Thankfully, my dad was friends with someone in that other town who just happened to be Becky's uncle. (laughs) Now, as I look back, None of those pieces were for me to put together. They were God to put together. And there I sat in Uncle Doug's house in a chair, and this beautiful young lady walked into the room, and as a 17-year-old young man, I picked up a ball and did the only thing I could think of. I threw it at her, and it hit her in the head. It got her attention. (laughs) And she fell in love with... That's right. That's the providence of God. God allowed a scholarship to get lined up in a way that I would have to go to a different town. And then, for the day that she walked in and I threw a ball at her, 17-year-old young men, forget the purple suit, forget the red boots, forget the ball, none of what I did made sense. (laughs) It's the providence of God putting those pieces together. And now, I can think of nobody in the world that would be as great a help meet at my side as what God has given me in my life. You see, that's the providence of God. And I wonder if you took the time this morning to think of the providence of God in your life, in your salvation, and who it was that God brought across your path, or maybe in the life of you and your spouse, as God has brought pieces together, the providence of God in your life. You see, the sovereignty is He has the right and He does follow through with ruling the universe. And the providence of God is Him working all things together for our good and for His glory. And we're going to be here in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, and I believe we're going to see this today. Hopefully you'll understand our overarching theme for today as we look at the providence of God. Our overarching theme is this, His way will always be better than my way. His way will always be better than my way. We left Ruth and Naomi coming back last week into Bethlehem. Elimelech is dead. Milan and Chilion are dead. Naomi has nothing left, no reason to stay in Moab. She's now coming back to Bethlehem. Her daughter-in-law, Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah got left behind. We never see her again. Ruth is now coming with Naomi into Bethlehem. And that's where we pick up in verse number 19. Ruth chapter 1 and verse number 19. I'll read verses 19 to 21. And we're going to see that she's coming home broken. Verse number 19, so they too went until they came to Bethlehem, and it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them, and they said, is this Naomi? 
She said unto them, Call me not, Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why then call me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. And here's Naomi coming home broken. I noticed in verse 19 that it says that all the city was moved about them. I don't see this in a picture of Naomi walking into Bethlehem and then here's all the thousands of people of Bethlehem come around her and like a bunch of Neanderthals kind of watching as she comes in. I don't think that's how it is. The tone here, all the city was moved. The tone is she was the talk of the town. That's what's what's going on here. This isn't a crowd of people following Naomi saying out loud, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? No, this is an entire city that's being disrupted by, we have a brand new talk when to talk about. And everybody's talking about, can you believe? I think, I heard Naomi came back. Yeah, I saw that old lady. She was down at the market. Was that Naomi? And over the years that she's been gone, 10 plus years, perhaps even 20 years, time has taken a toll on Naomi's life. Perhaps she's much more wrinkled than she was when she left. Perhaps she's now hunched over. She's made her own statement, I'm too old to remarry. And if by some chance God did give me a child, if I got married today and had a child now, I'm too old to raise this child. There's no way that Ruth and Orpah would wait around. Time has been hard on Naomi. And she makes this statement, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. Naomi means delight. Instead, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me delight. Instead, call me bitter. Why? Because the hand of the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And she made a statement. She said, I went out full and I've come again empty. And at first, I want to push back on Naomi here. I know she's broken, and when we're broken, we say things that are sometimes not exactly correct. And so I want to push back on Naomi just kindly. I know she's broken, but if you'll bear with me as I push back against her. She said, I went out full, and I say to her, Naomi, the reason you left was because you were hungry. You left the house of bread to go to Moab. You left the house of bread in Bethlehem because there was a famine. When you left, you weren't full. But the fact that she says, I come back empty, I think that what she's doing is she's contrasting the two statements. Where I'm at right now, compared to where I was when I left, that might as well have been full. Because I'm at the bottom of the bottom right now. And she looks back on where she was and she thinks to herself, oh, I had it good back then. I had a husband. I had sons. I had hope. I had a future. That was full. And can I speak to you pastorally this morning for just a moment? If I can use the example of Naomi, can I just speak from the standpoint of Naomi? 
Sometimes having a life that's marked by thankfulness will change your perspective. Yes, they're in a famine. And yes, they're going to need some food from somewhere. But the fact of the matter remains, if they'd have stopped to look around and realize what it was that they did have, they wouldn't have noticed so much what they didn't have. They did have a home with a future. And they did have extended family. And they did have the house of bread. And yes, they did have closeness to God. And yet, they walked away from those things, perhaps, if I could just say it this way, because they didn't recognize what good they did have in their life. And I say that having a heart of gratitude and a heart of thankfulness goes a long way. When you come into the New Testament, it's actually commanded. The Apostle Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18. In everything, give thanks. It's commanded, friend. In everything, give thanks. If we live our lives marked by gratitude, when those days of famine come up in our lives and you think, oh, things aren't going the way that they should be those moments, instead of running away and looking for something else away from God, instead we'll take a moment and we'll reflect and go, wait, God has been really good to me in this time. Even though I feel like I'm empty right now, I'm actually full. And now that she's returned, I don't know that she's fully understood and grasped this idea yet, but she will before we get to the end of the book. She will learn how to thank God for the emptiness too. You see, she was full, she says. I was full and I left and now I'm coming back empty. And she will learn before this book is over with, she will learn how to thank God for the emptiness. And here's what I mean by that. Thank God for your emptiness. For it was the emptiness that brought her back to Bethlehem. Do you realize that if she'd have stayed in Moab and Elimelech had never died and Malon and Chilion had never died, she would have lived the rest of her days in Moab. And she probably would have been just fine. She probably would have had food to live for day to day and she probably would have died in obscurity. And nobody would have ever known who she was and nobody would have ever had any tie of Naomi and that lineage that we talked about last week that tied her to David and to the Lord Jesus. You see, for her to have emptiness was what God was bringing in her life for her good. The providence of God allowed Elimelech and Malon and Chilion to die so that Naomi would end up seeing that she was empty. And you see, even the emptiness is what God uses in our lives. And in she comes back to Bethlehem. And in this moment, she says, God has dealt with me bitterly, but it is for her good. Friend, can I encourage you this morning? Settle a foundation of thankfulness. Thank Him for when the days seem famine and bare. And thank Him for when they're truly empty. For He's working. That's His providence. That's how He does this. He works in His providence to do things for our good and for His glory. I see in verse 22 a glimpse of hope. Look down at the end of verse 22. It says, They came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. This is the providence of God. Naomi and Ruth probably don't understand this yet, but God's already at work. God was at work in bringing them to emptiness, and now God is at work 
in bringing them to Bethlehem, and he's at work in bringing them to Bethlehem at the time that he brings them. Sometimes we just read our Bibles and we just pass through little phrases like this. But that little phrase carries significance. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, for those of us that live in a tropical setting, we kind of don't understand the idea of a season of planting and a season of harvesting. We're blessed with the fact that you can plant it, and as long as you keep bringing water to that little baby plant, she's going to grow. <laughs> That's a blessing that God has given to us. But in temperate zones like Israel, there's a growing season and there's a harvesting season. And there's winter months where nothing grows. It's just too cold. You might as well forget it. Don't plant. But the whole reason that there's a planting season and a harvesting season is so that you can take from the harvest season and save for the winter months because if you don't have food saved for the winter months, you will go hungry and you will die. And so this is ingrained into the minds of these people. And so when it says that it is now the beginning of barley harvest, that's the end of March. Follow me. Winter has been through December, January, and February, and now they are into barley harvest. Barley is the cheapest of all the grains. It grows the fastest. And as soon as they can plant the barley fields, they do. But that barley grows really fast. And the barley gets harvested from the end of March all through April. And as the barley fields finish with their harvesting, it's now time to harvest the wheat. And the wheat goes from the end of April through May. And then you finish with wheat and you get the grapes. And the grapes go June, July, and August. And then you finish with the grapes, you get the olives. And they go September, October, November. And by the time you're done in November, it's time to sit back in the house and enjoy what you've harvested all year long. For them to come, Naomi and Ruth, to come to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest means that they're going to get the chance to partake in a harvest for the rest of the year. Barley, then wheat, then grapes, then olives. They're going to get a chance to glean, and we'll talk about gleaning in a minute. They get the chance to glean all year long. I'm going to go ahead and give you a glimpse of what's about to happen. Boaz is going to tell them, you can glean from my fields you don't have to go anywhere else. In a minute, I'll tell you why that's so significant. But they just came into town in Bethlehem, and they get to get food. God has provided for them just the very fact that they came at the right week. This is an amazing thing. You see, there's hope in this. Naomi probably hasn't seen it yet. But it's coming. It's the providence of God working in their lives. Now, as I come down into the next few verses... Verse, chapter 2 and verse number 1, I see that they're going to be doing, he's going to, uh, Ruth's going to be doing some gleaning in a providential field. Remember, his way is always better than my way. Chapter 2 and verse number 1. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Uh, verse 2 is going to go back to the story of Ruth and Naomi, and I just love the way that God just slipped verse 1 in there. It's kind of like, hey, here's a story, here's a story, here's a story, let me tell you about this story, and oh, by the way, here's a very, si very important side point that needs to be spoken of. And that's what just happened in verse 1. It did not follow the train of thought of the story, but God just pulled a very important piece and said, let me tell you about Boaz. Uh, Boaz is a very influential man. He's a kinsman to Naomi. 
He's a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech. So we're just introduced to, I'm going to call him Israel's, uh, or Bethlehem's most eligible bachelor. Here he is either, he's never been married or he has been married and widowed without any children. His lineage actually is recorded three times in the scripture and every time it's tied directly to Ruth. So that tells me he has no other children. And so here is Boaz, a rich man, a mighty man of wealth. And I'll just use some air quotes as you and I would in human thinking. He just happens to be there. Can I remind you? God's always at work. In His providence, He's always at work. So we read verses 2 and 3. Verse 2. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him, in whose sight I shall find grace. Before I read further, I just want to make, make a point here. Ruth did not say, I saw Boaz, and he was a mighty man of wealth, so I'm going to his field. That's not what she did. Look at the wording in verse 2. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. In other words, uh, Mom, I'm going to go and look for a place to glean. Wherever the Lord will open a door for me to glean, I'm going to go there. She did not say, I'm going to go and glean in Boaz's field. Just keep that in mind, young people. You go looking for the right one, you're going to end up in a mess. His ways are always better than your ways. Let him be the one that works out these details. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on a field, a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And so let me talk to you for just a minute about reaping and gleaning. So in the fields, there were two different kinds of people that would work in the field. There were the reapers and the gleaners. Historically, we know that many times there were as many gleaners as there were reapers, but you had to be careful that there were not more gleaners than there were reapers. I'll explain why. The reapers are employees. They're hired by the owner of the field. When barley comes time to harvest, it, harve- it comes ripe very quickly. And if you've ever seen pictures of wheat, and we've got some here on the screen, you got wheat grows up, barley does the same thing, grows up, and then all of its fruit is in the seed that's at the top. If you wait to harvest it, that seed will fall off the stalk and go to the ground, mix in with the dirt, you'll never harvest it. So you have to harvest it at the perfect right time when it is coming now at the top of the stalk, but not yet falling off. So you've only got a couple of days or at the most a couple of weeks to get it in. So the guy that owns the field will hire as many reapers as he can afford. Got to get that in. If it drops the head, or if the rain falls, or the wind blows too strong, it will drop, and you're going to forget it. You've wasted your time in planting that. So he hires the reapers. 
And the reapers come out with their special knife to cut with bundles. And they go through, and I'm talking about massive fields. It's hard work, leaning over with your back. Bundle these up and get them all in before the seed falls off of the stalk. That's the reapers. Employees. The gleaners, on the other hand, are the poor people. And the gleaners were the ones who would come along after the reapers, and they would get the bits and pieces that got left behind. And if you've ever spent time cutting grass on a big field, you'll notice when you get finished cutting the grass, you step back and you look at it and you go, oh man, I missed that one and missed that one and missed that one. The gleaner comes through and does those little pieces. The Old Testament, God provided for this, and this was a way to take care of the poor. God commanded it, in in Leviticus it's there twice, in Deuteronomy it's once, and God commanded for them to leave those bits and pieces for the poor to collect. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 9 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of the field. So the corners are reserved for the gleaners. Neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest, thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard, thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger, I am the Lord your God. So here's the command, leave the corners, the poor will take those, the stranger, the one who is not from Israel, the one who's from a far country, They will come and they will get the corners. They'll get the bits and pieces. The parts of grain that fell off the stalk already and made it to the ground, they can come through and they can pick those. Those are the gleaners. In the book of Deuteronomy, he repeats this law and he adds one little important statement to it. Here's Deuteronomy 24 and verse 19. When thou cuttest down thy harvest in the field and hast forgot a sheep, shalt not go again to fetch it, it shall be for the stranger for the fatherless, and for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hands. So the gleaning is God's provision for the poor people, for the widows, and especially for people like Ruth, who are a stranger from another place. Notice in verse 3 it says that her hop, see in verse 3, her hop was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz. We might say, in today's language, Lucky name, come up, Lord, it's hop. In God's way of speaking, in the providence of God, Ruth ended up in Boaz's field. She does not know Boaz. They have never met. She doesn't know who Boaz is, but her hop, I love the word hop. It's like it just happened to be. Remember, nothing is by chance with God. He is sovereign over all things, and the way that He orchestrates is with His providence. And so let me just give a, a maybe, a, a, I don't know if this is how it worked, but maybe, maybe, maybe it'll help you to see this. Ruth and Naomi get up in the morning, and Ruth says to Naomi, I'm going to go and I'm going to glean in one of the fields, pray for me. I need to go and glean, and by the way, when you go to glean, you don't go anywhere you want. That's called stealing. You have to get permission from the owner of the field to glean in his field. So when she says, I'm going out to glean in the field of the one who will show grace, off she goes. 
And I can just imagine she comes out of the house, and in front of the house she has a street there. She can go that way or that way. And it just so happens, by the providence of God, as she looks down that way, there's maybe three or four boys that look a little bit, hmm, maybe I don't want to walk down that street today. So instead of her walking that way, she turns this way and starts walking down the street this way. You know what this is? It's the providence of God guiding her. And as she comes down this way, perhaps there's a junction here, and as she looks this way, there's a dog down there, and maybe the dog barks at a cat. I don't know. But the dog catches her attention, and she decides, you know, I don't want to walk that way in front of the dog. I'll go this way. And she walks this way, and she walks out into the field. By the way, the fields were separate from the town of Bethlehem. We see that later in the passage. She did not just walk out of her house and end up in Boaz's field. She walked out of the city and into the fields, and her hop, she just happened by the providence of God to end up in Boaz's field. Again, she does not know him. She gets permission. There's a supervisor in the field, and by the way, we'll see this in a minute, Boaz is not there. There's a supervisor looking after the reapers, and he, she asked the supervisor, can I come and re, a glean in this field? And the supervisor said, sure, join in with ours. And she begins to work, and she's there working, and she works from the morning until the afternoon. And there in the field is a little, they call it a house, but I can just imagine, maybe it's just a shelter. Lick, lick house wind so that she can relax in the hot sun. And that's where we pick up in this next portion as we read. Look at verse number 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. I don't know, maybe he had a business meeting that morning, kept him in town. Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with thee. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. I think that this is just common business. He shows up, talked to the supervisor. How's the day going, guys? And they said, we're having a good day. Lord bless you too. Now notice verse number four, five. Then said Boaz unto his servant that was over the reapers. That's why I said the supervisor. He says to the super, uh, supervisor, whose damsel is this? So he sees Ruth over on the side, and he says to the supervisor, hey, um, <clears throat> who's that? You see, in the providence of God, God brought Ruth to glean in the field of Boaz, eligible, eligible bachelor. And I don't know, maybe that morning, God had reminded him about how lonely things were being an eligible bachelor. And I don't know, I'm just speculating here because we don't get a picture of Ruth, but I would imagine that she's probably a beautiful lady. Maybe he comes to the workplace and he just happens to be talking to the supervisor. How much have we gotten in today? You guys making good progress? It's a good day. And maybe he looks over at Ruth and him looking at him light skin lick lick or dark skin lick lick. I don't know. However, however, the Lord entuned his heart. There's a young lady and he went, wow. Maybe that morning she just happened to grab the next shirt out of the laundry, it was just, in her mind, the next one she just happened to wear was the color blue, and it just so happens that Boaz likes the color blue. You see what this is? It's the providence of God putting pieces in place. I think if Boaz showed up and she was there, hanging down out of her mouth, 
and she's hobbling along just asking for money, he'd have been like, get on with you. I don't want anything to do with you. But somehow he showed up and he went, that one, yes, sir. Who's that lady? And the supervisor responds with some favorable answers, but in the middle of the favorable answer, there's a derogatory statement. Verse number 6. The servant was set over the reapers, answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back from Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, asking, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. So she says, hey, this lady, she's a hard worker. She came in the morning. She asked permission. I gave her permission. She's been gleaning. And she's been here from the morning all the way until now. And right now, she's taking a break under the house. You see her. She's taking a break there in the shelter. Um, but she's been working hard. And in case you're wondering, and you wanted to know who is she, he just said it in verse 6, she is the Moabitish woman who came with Naomi from Moab. You don't have to think very hard to realize what he just did. He just chucked her under the bus. He said, yeah, she's a hard worker, but don't miss the fact that she's Moabitish and she's from Moab. Like you could have said it once and it meant it twice. You didn't have to say it twice. She's Moabitish, she came with Naomi, that's enough. Or she came with Naomi from Moab, that's enough. Everybody in Bethlehem has been talking about this. Everybody from Beth- in Bethlehem knows this story. And here this guy goes, oh, by the way, she's from Moab, and she's Moabitish. And in case you didn't know, she's a Moabite from Moab. And in the providence of God, that does not matter one little bit to Boaz. In the providence of God, in case you forgot, Boaz is mixed race himself. You might remember last week, we threw it on the board, I'll throw it on the board again. Matthew 1, verse 5 Moab, or, uh, Boaz's lineage, Matthew 1, verse 5, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. Rahab. You remember Rahab in Jericho, the prostitute, and she gets brought into the family of God, and Salmon, Boaz's dad, says, mm-hmm, I'll marry that lady. Because it's not just the whole people that God has kicked out, but God is open to individuals who will humble themselves and come to Him just like Rahab did. So Rahab came humbly and God brought her into the family of God. And someone said, I'll marry that one. And as little Boaz has been growing up, you know what Rahab has been teaching him? There's some things we don't say, son. There's some ways that we don't act. There are people in other people groups who are that way because they were born that way. So we don't say things like, am highlands or same not. We don't say that. I'm sepical, same not. No, we don't say that. We say, Christ died for that one too. And if Christ loved them, so will I. And so little Boaz grows up with this mentality that says, I don't care that she's Moabitish. Does she love the Lord? It's all he cares about. And so Boaz says, fine, Mr. Supervisor, you can have your own ideas. I've got mine. So over he goes to meet her. I see this as generational. By the way, I, I think it's worth stopping for just a second and speaking generationally, friends. There is such a thing as generational sin. God said He visits the sins of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren. 
Generational sin, I'll talk about, I'll, we'll move on in the story in just a second. Generational sin, I, I, I'll, I'll give example. Dad, you ever wonder why it is that you get angry so quickly? Just stop and think about it. It's generational. Why do you get angry? There's a really good chance that your dad also got angry. And why did he get angry? Because his dad got angry. And if the gospel doesn't do its transforming work in your heart, you will pass that generational sin to your son. And it doesn't just have to be anger. It can be any number of, one of, any number of the sins, and you can just let your mind run. Or moms, why is it that you've got such a sharp tongue? And you know, you can use your sharp tongue to cut your husband or speak down to your children and put them in their place. Why is it that you've got a sharp tongue? That's generational. You can similar mama blue you. Now I'm similar mama blue in. Now behind picking blue you like by got to. Unless the gospel does its transforming work in your life, and it can. Brothers and sisters, hear me well. Because of the gospel making its difference in my life, and because the Holy Spirit letting myself be steered by the Holy Spirit, I have the ability to break the bonds of generational sin. And as I look at this story, I think that Boaz marrying Ruth is a direct result of good, godly, generational training. And so may our stories, church, may our stories be marked by generational training and not by a continuation of generational sin. Look at verse 8. Boaz goes over and speaks to Ruth now. Verse 8. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? And that's a different way of saying, Hey, listen up. i got something I need to tell you. Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maiden. Stay here with these ladies that are here. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go, out, go thou after them. Have not I charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? When thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. So Boaz just welcomed her in, and not only does this apply to the harvest of barley, this is going to be for the rest of the year. She gets to providentially be fed for the rest of the year barley and wheat and grapes and olives. She gets to partake. And my goodness, this is going to be a great day and great year for her. She just got welcomed in, not just today's gleaning, but every day's gleaning. Come and work with my people. And he says to her, I'll tell you what, I'll add on to that. I'll protect you. You see, the gleaners, the poor people, constantly looking over their shoulders. I'll get some from here today and some from there tomorrow, always having to look over the shoulders. And here, Boaz says, I'll take care of you. I'll provide the security. In fact... I'll provide security for you from my own employees. My boys won't touch you. They do. I'll take care of them. And then on top of it, by the way, gleaners don't get to participate with the things that the reapers get, like pay and food and water. And in a hot sun in the Middle East, in a dry, barren place, you need water. And he says, you don't have to bring water every morning. Just come. My guys have got some water. You're welcome to drink out of their pitchers as well. You want to talk about some grace that's being poured out on her life right now. What an awesome moment for her. This poor stranger being welcomed in. She doesn't understand it. Look at verse 10. We'll see some explaining of this grace and as he provides some more. Look at verse 10. Then she fell on her face. That's a right response, by the way. 
bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found, found grace in thine eyes? that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger. Why this grace? Why are you paying attention to me? I'm just a stranger and I don't belong here. I hope, I hope, friends, that you're hearing the gospel tones all throughout this passage. I'm going to give them at the end, okay? I'll give them at the end. But I hope you've been seeing them all along. Why? I'm a stranger, God. Why would you ever show grace upon me? That's where Ruth's finding herself right now. Why in the world would you show grace to me, Boaz? I don't deserve it. Verse 11, And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath been showed, fully been showed to me, all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother in the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. And the Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, unto whose wings thou art come to trust." In other words, I know who you are. Boaz says, you don't know me, but I know you. Anybody hearing some gospel tones there? You don't know me, but I know you. And I know who you are, and the whole city's been talking about it. And by the way, I know what you've done to take care of my tombu from the death of your husband. All right, so here is... Let's go to that, this, this godly love story, all right? There's nothing wrong here. This is a beautiful godly love story. As Boaz comes and he says to the supervisor, who's the pretty girl over there? I want to know. I want to meet her. And then he walks over and he begins to talk to her. And she says, I don't know why you would talk to me. I don't know why you would be kind to me. He says, I know who you are. In fact, I know, <clears throat> I know that <clears throat> you're not married anymore. <laughs> I love the way he just kind of slipped that right in there. <laughs> setting the stage. This poor guy, he's got it bad for her. Verse 13, Then she said, Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for that thou hast comforted me, for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like one of thine handmaidens. I don't deserve it. If you were to boil down verse 13 to one statement, it would just be this. Thank you. He notices this heart and this attitude And he picks up on it. Watch what he does. Verse 14, Boaz said unto her, At mealtime come thou hither and eat of the bread and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. He skipped Facebook stalking her. He didn't ask for her phone number. He didn't look her up on Instagram. He went straight to let's have dinner together. (laughs) He's, come on over. We're going to have dinner. And The way this is working, he's got dinner set aside for all of the workers in the field. There's nothing wrong here. There's nothing immoral. He's not doing anything wrong. She's one of the gleaners, and if he didn't invite her, she wouldn't come. She knows her place. But the reapers are there. He has had the handmaidens working all day so that they can provide the food for the workers. Those workers have been out in the field reaping, and he knows he's going to be having dinner with them, and he says to her, you know what, I really like the attitude that you've got. How about dinner time, come on over, have some bread with us, dip your morsel in vinegar. That was a refreshing drink that they would drink for the reapers. In fact, they do it until today. They still do that. Dip the bread into, the bread was a bit dry, dip it into the vinegar. It was a refreshing way. And then actually, because the sun has not quite set at dinner time, for you and I, 6 p.m., sun's down, forget it, go to bed. There, 
The sun has not set yet. It's still high in the sky. You eat and then you go back to work. And so in that setting, you need to be refreshed before you go back to finish out the day's work. And so here, he says, come and join us. The gleaners are going to be wore out. The gleaners are going home. They're done. The reapers, they get to have a meal. They get to finish out the day. And here he says, come and join us for dinner. And then into verse 14, she sat beside the reapers and he reached her parched corn. And she did eat and was sufficed and left. She ate until she was full and she had leftovers. Boaz just did a Joseph to Benjamin with Ruth at the reaper's table. Gave her more than she needed. And I like the little statement there at the end of verse 14. He reached her parched corn. Now, now, okay, anytime the Old Testament uses the word corn, it's usually not what you and I think of as a yellow stalk of corn. You say, what in the world has the corn got to do? This is barley, and most likely, most of the time when the Scriptures talks about corn, it's, it's, it has to do with the, the bits of wheat, or the bits of the, the fruit of the, of the grain. So here... He reached her parched corn. In that setting, they've just harvested barley. Some of that barley they've placed over the fire and they've roasted it. And so now they have a bowl of roasted barley there. They're eating bread. They're dipping with vinegar. They're enjoying conversation. And Boaz reaches some of this parched corn and passes it to Ruth. Maybe that doesn't mean anything to you. But here's what it tells me. He's paying attention to her. If it's a nothing, he lets somebody else give food to her. She eats, she eats. I invited her. Big deal. But if he cares about her, you got enough water there? Hey, wait, wait, wait. You're, you, 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 have you tried this? I can just hear it at the, as they're sitting around. Have you, have you tried this? This part's corn something else. You've got to try this. He reaches over and goes to hit it. I don't know. Maybe their fingers touched each other. I don't know. <laughs> the providence of God. And his heart is beginning to look towards her. She did not come looking for a relationship, but God's putting some pieces together in his providence. His ways are always better than our ways. Verse 15, when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and reproach her not. So, so, so just follow the thought. The sun hasn't gone down yet. They finished the meal. They're going back out to eat, uh, going back out to work. Most likely, the gleaners have left. They're tired. The reapers just got refreshed. And these reapers are going back out in the field. They're going to make use of the last couple of hours of sunlight. Ruth also is now refreshed, so she's going to continue to glean. And Boaz says, let her glean among the sheaves. In verse 16, and let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her and leave them that she may glean them and rebuke her not. You remember what that command was in Deuteronomy, right? In Deuteronomy, when you're reaping the field, if you drop some, you have to leave it. And so Boaz says, hey boys, when you're reaping in this next couple of hours, all the other gleaners are gone. They're not going to know about this. So you reap and you drop. And you reap and you drop. And you reap. And he said, me and you, we'll know about it. 
but she will come along behind and go, oh my goodness, look at this. Oh my goodness, look at this. Oh my goodness, look at this. And all the while, not having any idea of the providence of God in her life. God's providing for her need right now, but God's also providing a lineage for Himself for generations to come. You see, the providence of God, His ways are always better than our ways. And you need to learn how to thank Him in the good times and in the empty times. We'll read verse number 17. So she gleaned in the field until even. And she stayed back that evening and beat out that she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. That's about 20 kilos of prepared barley that she's beaten out. For a gleaner, that's a good day. Because the gleaners go around and pick up the little bits and pieces. You're not going to pick up 20 kilos of bits and pieces. She's got not just 20 kilos of sheaves. She's got those sheaves beaten out in a bag. She's taken home just the seeds, the actual fruit, 20 kilos. And don't forget from verse 14, she had some dinner left over too. Remember, she ate to her fill and she had some left over. And so that brings me to the part where she goes home and she sees Naomi. She's going to be sharing and telling about this, probably her best day ever. So look at verse number 18. And she took it up, went into the city. Remember I told you the fields are apart from the city. So she took it up, got her 20 kilos, got her to-go bag, headed back into the city. And her mother-in-law saw that she Uh, saw what she had gleaned, and she brought forth and gave to her that she had reserved after she was sufficed. I scratched my head about that statement. The phrase there, what she had reserved after she was sufficed. I couldn't figure that out, and I've kind of alluded to it throughout the sermon now. What she had when she was sufficed. What did she have? She had the leftovers. That's the leftovers of verse 14. She took those home with her, as well as taking home those, that 20 kilo bag of grain. And so she comes to Naomi, and she has this bag of barley, and she also has another bag, to-go bag, of leftovers from dinner. And she gives that to Naomi. You, you understand the blessing this is to Naomi, right? 20 kilo bag? You don't have to glean for several days now. So I wonder if on the way home, I wonder if if Ruth has been thinking things like, you know what, if we can continue to glean at this pace, I know she's a Proverbs 31 type of woman. She's virtuous and she's industrious, and with her hands she will bless her home. I can only imagine if perhaps she's beginning to think, you know what, if I could have a 20 kilo day every day, I might just be able to start selling some of this, and we might start be able to make more than enough so that we don't have to remain poor for the rest of our days. She has no idea what's to come in the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. She's not thinking that. It's been a good day gleaning. And she touched Boaz's hand. That's all she got. And she's coming home. And she brings home this bag of barley. And she brings home the leftovers. And she provides for Naomi with the leftovers. You know what that means? Naomi doesn't have to cook the barley tonight. Naomi didn't have to wait until she got home to start preparing a meal. As soon as she gets home, she's got a meal already prepared. Naomi gets to eat the leftovers from Ruth's meal. And now Naomi asks a question in verse 19 that's going to leave us with a cliffhanger. And her mother-in-law, verse 19, her mother-in-law 
said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today? And where wroughtest thou? Where did you work? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought and said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. Naomi knows something. I have a feeling that Ruth does not fully understand how big a deal it is that she just met Boaz. If you know the story, you know how big a deal it is. If you don't know the story, I'm leaving it here. We're going to pick it up next week. Naomi knows how big a deal it is that it's Boaz, and according to the text, she's not going to say anything about it for three months. And I think that so often in our lives, we try to provide our way. And you know what our way would be in this story? Our way would be Naomi and Ruth the night before she goes to glean Naomi and Ruth sitting at the house, and Naomi trying to put the pieces together. You know what? If you go over to Boaz's house, it could go like this and this and this. You just go and knock on his door. I've got a handwritten letter here. You pass that letter over, and then he'll read it, and he'll know that it's you that's coming to glean, and he'll give a permission. You see, that's the way we as humans try to make things work ourselves. But God in all of His providence said, no, 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 no. Watch what I do. You know what Ruth set out to do that morning? find food for dinner for that night. She was just faithful. Just do what she's supposed to do. What is it that's right in front of her? Do it with all of her heart. That which thy hand findeth to do, do with all your heart. Do it as unto the Lord. But what what was it that God did in all of His providence? (laughs) Her hop just happened to be at Boaz's field. Who just happened to be the guy who doesn't have a problem with mixed race marriage who just happened to be having a good day and just happened to be lonely and remembering that he hasn't been married. And here is God putting pieces together in His providence. You see, God is always at work in His ways are so much better than ours. Before I go to the Gospel Tones, can I just take a second and, and encourage moms and dads? Did you notice how open the conversation was when Ruth came home? Ruth's been gone all day. And it is her best day, probably best day of her life. And so here Ruth comes into the house, and Naomi says, God has blessed you. Where have you been? And you realize that a lot of our young people, our children, and our society, when they come home, and that young lady has got, she's done Twitter-pated, and her heart's doing somersaults because she touched the fingers of Boaz. And she comes home and mom says, where have you been today? And she says, somewhere. Or mom finds out, oh, you met Boaz today? And mom says, how many times do I have to tell you, don't hang out with boys? And cuts off the communication. I love how open these two are. I love how open they are. And you know what a big deal it is for a widow to be told by her daughter-in-law, I might have just found somebody today. That's a big deal. You'll stand in a picking and meal. There's a lot going on there, right? And so the very fact that these two are open, I think, can be a really good example to us. Let me show you the gospel tones and we'll be done. I hope that you've seen them as God has providentially provided for Ruth. 
There are several gospel tones. I'll just run through them real quickly and let you see them. We as Gentiles and strangers had no right to be right with God. And yet, He loved us. And He sent His Son, Jesus, to provide for us in ways that we never dreamed and we never could have expected. Definitely didn't deserve. That's His grace. As He poured out His goodness upon us. And with His goodness... He's drawn us to repentance, as Romans 1 says. His goodness is intended to draw us to repentance. And with His goodness, He has drawn us to Himself as He's dropped handfuls of purpose along our way. I hope that when you look at the handfuls of purpose that God has put into your life, I hope you don't think, oh, how lucky I've been. No, think, God in His providence has drawn me to Himself. Father, I thank You for Your goodness in our lives. I thank You that You are an almighty God loves your children. We certainly don't deserve your grace. You've been good to us over and over. And so, Lord, I pray as we look at a story like Ruth meeting Boaz, Lord, may we take some of these examples and put them to our life and realize, God, you're at work. In the good times of handfuls of purpose and in the bad times of emptiness, you're at work. And we can trust you for your ways are always better than ours. Ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen.